Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. I continue to contend that the biggest problem we face as a movement is not that people have heard our arguments and rejected them. It's that they've never heard a persuasive pro-life case or never taken the time to consider one. The catechism that we've been told by the world is Christianity is backward. It's quite the opposite. The push toward LGBTQ rhetoric is a push backwards in time backwards to a pre-Christian morality. The higher critic is dead or dying, and Jesus rose again from the dead. So I'm going to take his view of the Bible rather than your view of the Bible. I think we need to be very open to the reality that if baptism is a new birth, and your first birth took place without your knowledge or consent, then your second birth can also take place without your knowledge or consent. It is the gift to you of a new life. Hi, this is Mark in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and fathers watching their four-month-old daughters love listening to Issues Etc. Lutherans like to talk about the uses of God's law. The first, second, and third use of the law, a curb, a mirror, a guide, or a teacher. And that is very good. That's a very good rule of thumb. Another way of looking at it, however, is to ask, how did Jesus use the law? He is, after all, the lawgiver. He is the one who appeared to Moses on Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments. The law has its origin in his very divine nature. So, how did Jesus use his own law? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to spend some time answering that question, how Jesus uses his law. Dr. John Bombaro, author of a column titled Deep Diagnosis Part 1, Preaching to the Heart, will be our guest. Ted Kober joins us. He's author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for January, Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. We'll have the first part of a conversation with him on forgiveness and unforgiveness. And then Dr. Jordan Cooper, Executive Director of Just and Sinner, will answer the question, why he is not a Roman Catholic. Dr. John Bambaro is a special project supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island. He's author of a column titled Deep Diagnosis, Preaching to the Heart. Dr. Bambaro, welcome back. It's a privilege to be with you again, Todd. Thank you. How does Jesus use God's law as a mirror in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Well, using a medical analogy that I once heard from my missionary colleague, Charles Courtright, Our Lord Jesus applies the law in such a way that turns our insides out. Christ takes what he knows about human hearts, that is to say, the the post-fall nature of humanity, and as it were, he placards it for all to hear during the Sermon on the Mount. That nature 
perpetuating the marred image of our first parents, just as we read in Genesis chapter 5, where they, in stark contrast to Genesis chapter 2, have a son after their own image, that is to say, after their own likeness, is how all descend from the common ancestry of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's biblical anthropology. That's Augustinian anthropology. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37, following really hard on verses 17 and following, where Jesus declares that he came to fulfill the law, now shows us what the standard of the law is for us. So he's, in this pericope, telling us how to see ourselves truly and accurately. He takes the law and he sets it forth in such a way that we get a good look of what's going on inside of us. That's using the law as a mirror. Paul reflected on what Jesus did, and he said this in in Romans chapter 3, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's the mirror aspect. The law needs to be preached in this way so that it isn't merely a matter of auditors considering whether they have committed this peccadillo or that, but rather the condition of the hearts that only Christ with the Holy Spirit can remit, redeem, and renew. So within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges the opinions of the doctors of the law of his day by putting humanity in the divine MRI machine of the law. And the law, from the perspective of the one and only true and living God, turns out to be nothing like the traditions of the elders and certainly nothing like modernity's wildly optimistic anthropological perspective. Let's go through some of that in more detail. Why do we need to have God's law preached to us in this way? I can think of three or four reasons why. The first one being because we're all given to the self-deceit of self-justification. We're constantly excusing ourselves, and so before the law, which accuses us of law-breaking, and my mind goes to January 1st, where in the state of California, 70,000 new laws were implemented. But you only need to break one of them to be a lawbreaker. And that's what the law does. It accuses us of law-breaking. We search for that thing that we can do, be it never so not minute as the basis of our self-vindication. That's why we need to have the law preached with all of its thoroughness and vigor, according to its standards. Secondly, we need God's law preached to us in this way because we're all by nature Pelagian at heart and love moralistic, do-it-yourself preaching that points the way to can-do religion. In contrast to the preaching that Jesus commissioned, this kind of moralism opposes the proper distinction between the law and the gospel, and it it conflates the two. Perhaps it might be better to consider that we're all fallen by nature as self-representing attorneys given to the practice of vindicating our sole client of me, myself, and I to the standard that we confect, which is usually a very attainable standard of law, And this is religion. This is the religious standard of achievable law. When self-justification is the goal, or alternatively, if shopping for a message that serves my best life now, then we're going to find prepositions are going to creep in and alter the onus of true Christ commission preaching. And it's going to wind up shifting from the transitive use of preaching Christ, preaching gospel, 
to accommodating intransitive consumer preferences. We'll be hearing about sermons on marriage or preaching about your best life now. So in this light, we can better understand the rise of Islam and the decline of Christianity in the West, for example. In the U.S., nearly 60% of American Muslims are converts to Islam, and that's because the way of Muhammad is accomplishable. You can do it. It might be demanding, but it is achievable. And then I think of two other reasons. We need God's law preached to us because in the pure preaching of God's word, in this case, the word of the holy law of the living God, the Holy Spirit is active to expose the true conditions of the human heart, its condemnable fruit, and so turn our eyes off the self and the impossibility of self-justifying religion, such that Islam or Judaism or Mormonism or indeed ideological humanitarianism holds forth in domains where, for instance, today socialism or technological utopianism are lauded. So anything less then what Jesus discloses in the Sermon on the Mount constitutes the deceit of a false optimistic anthropology such that leads to the false hope of confected religion. And then the last thing on my mind as to why we need God's law preached to us in the way that Jesus does is because it explodes the idol of the self and brings us face to face with the truth. And guess what? The truth is, is that you are not the answer to the problem of yourself. No matter how much mindfulness you practice or how much stoicism you exercise. Why, as you said before, is it important that we are shown both our particular sins, but also our underlying sinful condition? Well, it's important because we can amend our outward behavior. That much is within the scope and control of humanity. Oh, this is what makes stoicism so popular today and and mindfulness and it's usually religion or the religion of non-religion that offers the way forward with a series of can-do propositions a whole lot of good advice and honestly todd as far as it goes it is good advice but it isn't the gospel and it never addresses the root of the problem and it never attains to the standard required and the standard isn't just a little bit better The standard isn't just a little more self-control. The standard is what Jesus articulates here in Matthew chapter 5, and particularly verse 48, divine perfection. And this is why God in Christ exposes the true issue. It isn't merely that one looked upon a woman. It's the adulterous heart. It isn't merely the ill-gotten word you spoke. It's the malice from which it arose. It's the inordinate self-loving disposition that says, my standard for you is me, and you don't measure up to me. Jesus, however, moves well beyond the outward conformity to assume standards, that is, the standards that I depict or that men depict, these sort of traditions of the elders or the interpreters of the law. These are your good old-fashioned religionists offering parameters for attainment, according to their own adjudications. Jesus says that not only is your thoughts, words, and deeds a problem, but the inescapable, non-transferable, unjustifiable root of it all is the core of your desires, love, and dispositions, what the Bible calls the heart. In Matthew 12, Jesus expands on this, and he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, there's the origin, the heart. 
A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things, which is why Jesus says, I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of on the day of judgment. For by the words you shall be justified, and by the words you shall be condemned. And there's only one word that's going to be justifiable, and it's not going to be self-justifying. It is going to be relying on the perfection of another. The point is that there is no heart that permits any mouth to self-justify. All are condemned before the law on account of the sin of the heart from which sins issue. Speaking there of the heart, how does God judge the heart in the preaching of his law? Well, Jeremiah tells us quite clearly in chapter 17, the only true and living God says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's to say, from the fruit of his heart. So from the divine perspective, there is no justification to be found in one's heart. There's no appeal to a good heart as far as the law is concerned. We should recoil when we hear people say, well, God looks upon the heart. Well, that's the most frightening prospect. The Lord denominates man's heart as deceitful above all things, desperately sick and beyond the ability of any person, be it a philosopher, a psychologist, or a theologian to properly diagnose. He says, who can understand it? Well, none of the above. And this is why God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, gives us a true dose of the law in Matthew 5. He elevates the law. And indeed, the, the second law, the Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, and takes it to its rightful standard in comparison, the perfections of the Father. For this is what it means to be created in the divine image and the divine likeness, namely, to image forth, to remunate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our love to the triune God, to our neighbors, and to ourselves, and to do so in the divine likeness, in his image, imaging forth his perfection. So Jesus' standard, which is the Father's standard, is summated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus uses it like a mind scanner to expose the soul. So let me just speak on that for a moment. So imagine there's a device like a mind scanner, and this is why it's so important. Because when we're just looking at the outward behaviors of ourselves, our spouse, our neighbor, we oh, they're a good person, they're laudable, they're commendable, they're exemplary in the community. But imagine there's a mind scanner. And with this scanner, the images and thoughts of a person's mind can be screen shared by projecting them for everyone to see. What kind of mental JPEGs would there be? What thoughts about a friend's good-looking spouse might there be or about the person who double-crossed you? What kind of audio would there be if we listened to, say, your mind's voice or we were able to see through your mind's eye? If only the natural person, if only the carnal person outside of Christ, if only the unbaptized, the unregenerate, then we might get an R and X rated version of you, your sin nature bearing ample fruit of the sins in thought, word, and deed. In other words, that's what's in our hearts. That's what's really there. And this is what Jesus does by putting us into the MRI of the law according to the divine standard. Does the law itself offer any hope to the sinner? It offers no hope. It's amazing how poor catechesis 
can lead to the wrong understanding here. I make it a point to ask all of my catechumens of all ages, does God require perfection to enter his kingdom? That is to say, the kingdom of heaven. And inevitably, the answer comes back, and sometimes unanimously, no, God doesn't require perfection. We aren't perfect, and God wouldn't require perfection from us. Todd, astonishingly, this is the soteriology and the anthropology of Pelagius. Pelagius freaked out when he read St. Augustine's prayer, God, command what thou willest, but grant what thou commandest. What Augustine was praying was, in other words, Give us, provide for us the perfection you require, O God. And Pelagius said, that's ridiculous. God would never ask anything beyond human ability. And that right there is always the hallmark of the anthropological phenomenon called religion. Standards that we can meet so that we can leverage our justification. The standard that Jesus articulates in Matthew 5, 48 is a summation of all the law of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible. It is the standard of God's own perfection without flaw, without error, with absolute motive in pure holiness and love and righteousness indicative of the blessed Trinity. It is impossible. The law offers no hope. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest or answering the question of how Jesus uses his law up next. How does the law turn us outside ourselves, and does God's law only accuse? If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. For sinners only, you're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. The saints at Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Kilgore, Texas, are strangers and exiles on earth seeking a homeland in heaven. If you are in East Texas, visit in person. Otherwise, visit online at www.pilgrimlc.org. I shall follow where 
is how Dr. John Warwick Montgomery concludes his Wittenberg Trail feature in the latest Issues Etc. journal. Why am I a Lutheran? Lutheranism possesses the most scripturally faithful theology in Christendom. Its theological center is the gospel, nothing less. Its leadership can still display the courage to insist that its scripturally justified theology remains the denomination's bedrock. You can read Dr. John Wark Montgomery's Wittenberg Trail feature absolutely free by subscribing to the Issues Etc. Journal. Just go to our website, issuesetc.org, click the red subscription button, enter your email address, and we'll send you the latest Issues Etc. Journal absolutely free. We're talking with Dr. John Bambaro on how Jesus uses his law. Dr. Bambaro, how does the law turn us away from ourselves outside ourselves? Well, instead of karma or performance evaluation, we hold out for a declaration, an announcement, a sermon that proclaims outside of us, a word that comes to us, what God has required, he has provided in the one made perfect through obedience, even obedience upon the cross, Jesus, the Son of God. Christ Jesus is the perfection that we need, the perfection that is required He is the perfection that is provided. The perfection imputed to our account, the perfection with which we are clothed in holy baptism, such that renders us justified by another's perfection. Jesus Christ, true Son of Mary, very Son of God. The commission message preached by Jesus, the law that Jesus required, purposes to drive us from an inward focus to an outward one one that gets beyond our own performance or own self-evaluation or standard, outside of ourselves to faith in the one who promises grace. St. Paul explained it well. He said in Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Only Jesus possesses the perfection that we need to be united to him by faith renders what is true about Jesus true for us, Christ is our righteousness. And we should keep this in mind. That is the standard, not only for ourselves, but our family members and for our neighbors. To think that your neighbor is good enough is never good enough. What is the weakness of preaching God's law as only prescriptions and proscriptions of particular actions? It leaves us with a failed and failing religion of men. And the basic problem with preaching the law is merely prescriptive or proscriptive deeds. It, it becomes doable. And as such, it becomes a means of delusional self-justification, which it, it achieves the standards which are confected by the likes of Pharisees, Imams, Joseph Smith, or as it is today, your do-gooder environmentalist or virtue signaler. That's That's the problem. That's the weakness of it. And all of these are the traditions of the men, of elders. They tame the law. They shrink it to human proportions and standards, and they make it entirely doable, predicated upon an unbiblical and false anthropology, an anthropology of human ability, such that yields a theology of self-justification. It's the same trap that Satan set in Eden. Lean on your own understanding. God looks on the heart. And so it persists as an irrepressible anthropology promulgating the false hope that God looks on the heart while we evidence deeds, that is, the the works of our good hearts. 
It's the unqualified self-diagnosis of a patient who, although they're riddled with four, stage four cancer, examines themselves and, th- and thinks that he's fine. God's law and the standard that Jesus sets forth, going beyond mere prescription and prescription, says that, no, the condition is terminal. St. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, he says, there is none good, no, not one. In fact, he's repeating a portion of scripture that occurs two other times in the Psalms, three times over in the scriptures. It lets us know that there is none that seeketh after God. There are none that are righteous, no, not one. And so it throws us outside of ourselves, indeed, even outside of humanity, to look to the one who is the God-man, Emmanuel. What was the a biblical concept of concupiscence that was advanced by the Lutheran reformers of the 16th century. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that it is a biblical concept, and indeed it is. It, it does require a little bit of backstory. So at the, at the time of the Reformation, we have Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic friar, and he himself was vexed by what essentially was an Aristotelian spin on the law. So Aristotle, the 4th century philosopher B.C., made the distinction between something possessing potentiality and it yielding an actuality. An example might be an acorn. An acorn has the potentiality of an oak tree, but it's actually a seed. Some Roman Catholic theologians applied this distinction to our relationship to the law so that only actual sins, sinful words and deeds, really mattered to God. It was the behavior that that really counted. So ungodly thoughts and desires, indeed dispositions, the human nature were merely concerns of potentiality. So a person could then, you know, conduct their business with God through a calculus of merit. You stay away from the actual sins, which of course would be demerit, and then you do good works, merit. And so you could look upon the outward actions of a person and by this way of calculus come to uh, factor their justification. Luther, however, he was really plagued with a case of conscience concerning the dispositions of his heart. That's to say concupiscence. Potentiality was the powerhouse of sins, and that was the real nature of concupiscence. And the Christic Pauline insight of Luther was that the problem was the heart, that the sinful heart produces sins. In other words, this Augustinian friar was acutely aware that sin was nothing other than human nature, that although its powers were broken and nullified by forgiveness and regeneration, would still abide with us until death. And so we live a life of faith, trusting on Christ from the time of our baptism, the time of our confession, all the way into our dying breath. Why did the Reformers understand the Christian life as one of daily repentance? Well, concupiscence was defeated. Of course, its power was broken, but it wasn't entirely eradicated We haven't been entirely regenerated in the totality of our person. That won't happen until the last day. And it constituted the plausibility structure of human living. That's to say, concupiscent sinfulness is found not just within us, but it constituted all the structural institutional sin of everything with which humanity had been engaged. And so consequently, the Christian life required a more radical dependence upon Christ and a constant resorting to a lifetime of repentance and faith in Christ who alone accomplishes and applies saving grace. 
He's the one who not only justifies the sinner, but he is ever the standard of the perfection that has been accomplished for us and imputed to us, constantly trusting in him. So Luther realized that for all the benefits of regeneration or sanctification, Christification, that is the transformation of the sinner into the saint, it was never going to be completed in this lifetime. Perfectionism was a false delusion. Perfection was to be found in Christ and in Christ Jesus alone. Hence, he is the object of faith always, and hence the constancy of faith. Christ is our perfect righteousness, and hence the constancy of repentance. I am not, and I cannot, of my own, attain perfection. I cannot attain righteousness. I must always, in repentance, look in faith to Christ Jesus, who is my all in all. How does the gospel remedy this hopeless diagnosis of God's law? How does it answer those accusations? Yeah, I think it, it just comes out just in, in the teaching to young catechumens. Does God require perfection? Yes. What is my need? My need is perfection. Does God provide perfection? Yes, he does. He does so in the perfect one. I really love that passage in Hebrews, I believe it is, that says that Jesus was made perfect through obedience. And the beautiful thing about that is Jesus could have had the kind of obedience that came about by way of a privileged royal life of comfort and security. That wasn't the case at all. So secure and so absolute is the righteousness imputed to us, the perfection of Christ accounted to us, that Jesus is made perfect through the horrors and the trials of betrayal, of scourging, of the loss of friendship, of defamation, Scripture put it this way, even death, death on a cross. That was the level and effect of his obedience for us. And then the other remedy comes in this way. Not only has Jesus been perfectly obedient and made perfect through obedience, even the death on the cross, but he also makes a blood atonement for our sins. He makes a propitiation and assuages God's wrath from our violations of the law. Jesus is the gospel that is the remedy for the hopeless diagnosis of God's law concerning us. And to be in Christ, to be united to him and in him, is the reversal of all of our fortunes. And all of that comes to us from the outside. And this gazing upon Jesus and trusting in him is in itself transformative for us. We begin to see even the law differently because Christ has given us his own spirit. Does God's law only accuse? We've talked a lot about its accusing function today, but does it only accuse? No, it doesn't. And and I think it really comes out in that last bit. We're justified by Christ's life, crucifixion, and resurrection, but we're also regenerated. We're given new hearts as a result of being united to him through holy baptism. And it is this new heart that makes possible Christian living according to the spirit and the ethic of Christ's kingdom. So with this new heart, illumined by the Holy Spirit and possessed of the love of God and united to Christ, who is our righteousness, that heart, the self, the I that is now found in Christ Jesus, about which St. Paul talks in Galatians chapter 2, that heart may appreciate the law of God as good and sweet 
for holy, blessed, and wise Christian living. You see, that's the law refashioned for its third use. And in this way, we see the will of God for us to walk in his ways for our own good and for his namesake. Dr. John Bombaro is Special Project Supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island. He's author of a column titled Deep Diagnosis Part 1, Preaching to the Heart. You'll find a link to it on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. John, thanks. It's always a privilege, Todd. Thank you. Dr. Ted Kober joins us on the other side of the break. We're going to begin a conversation with him on forgiveness and unforgiveness. He's author of The Issues, Etc., a book of the month for January, Unforgivable. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the Internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Where is God's mission? God's mission is everywhere. Yes, it's far away, but it's also very near. It's as near as your congregation and school, your neighborhood, your family and friends, even as near as your home. Wherever you are, God's mission is in that place. Through his mission, Christ is bringing forgiveness, life, and salvation to people everywhere, even here, right where you are. God's mission here. Learn more at lcms.org slash national mission. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4Life.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethel Lutheran, Ballinger, Texas. Epiphany Lutheran, Door, Michigan. Grace Lutheran, San Mateo, California. Emmanuel Lutheran, Orange, California. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Eola, Texas, Peace Lutheran, Rapid City, South Dakota, Resurrection Lutheran, Fredericksburg, Texas, St. John Lutheran, Sycamore, Illinois, St. Paul Lutheran, Valley City, Ohio, and Trinity Lutheran, Walton, Nebraska. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org. Click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. 
When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.